Matthew chapter 8, and we're going to be looking at verse 1 through 4 this morning. Um, And if you're familiar with the chapter, you know that we're about to, and probably shows in your heading, that Jesus is about to interact with a leper. Um, We'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, here in a moment as far as what the leprosy is or how it was handled. But before we move on into Matthew 8, I want to read two verses out of Leviticus. Uh, no need to turn there, just two verses uh, that speaks to the detriment of leprosy and its and Israel's outlook upon it and God's instruction for it. So in Leviticus, regarding the laws about leprosy, God, through Moses, spoke this word. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let their hair of their head hang loose. And he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. And he shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. So that tells us quite a bit about the magnitude of such disease. Uh, Let me read uh, once more 8, 1 through 4 and then pray. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. Pray with me. Father, your word is divine. It is inerrant. It is infallible. Lord, it carries your authority. It is the final judgment of how we see and live in this world. And so we know that your word reveals truth, but it reveals to us your son. And so show us Christ this morning. Show us in a way to see his power that transforms. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so... Uh, it's been it's been a while since we've been in Matthew. We stopped uh, sometime last spring, and I said I told you that we were going to go through Hebrews in 14 weeks. I was wrong. <laughs> it took a little bit longer than that. Um, so I want to just remind you of a few things in Matthew uh, as we think about what. God's intent is in communicating what is titled the gospel according to Matthew. Well, we understand that when they title the uh, the gospels Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John, the gospel, uh, we're speaking about the life ministry uh, of Jesus Christ. Now, Matthew is different than Mark, Luke, and very much different from John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke have some overlap, but Matthew comes writing from a perspective of a Jew to Jews, and um, he comes and begins his gospel with the declaration that Jesus Christ is the son of David and the son of Abraham, and here's what we have to understand. He is the promised one of God. He is the king, rightful and uh, the heir of David, the eternal king who will rule over an eternal kingdom. And so we will understand as we go through Matthew um, that we will see themes of king and kingdom. We will see themes of Old Testament prophecy. And if you recall, chapter 2 and into chapter 3 is much Old Testament prophecy fulfilled about Jesus. John the Baptist comes on the scene in declaring the way for the Lord. And then in four, excuse me, at the end of three, Jesus, in the beginning of his ministry, is baptized by John the Baptist. And then we have this wonderful statement that, uh, that 
uh, is made when Jesus was baptized. Immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And so if anybody with any sort of thought process in uh, in their minds, read Matthew 1, 2, and 3. They understand that the point of Matthew is Jesus. The point of the gospel is Jesus. I'm not telling you anything you don't already know, but sometimes it's a good reminder that what we want to be after when we open the Bible is Jesus. Okay? And so that actually takes a little work on your part. Because our tendency when we read the Bible is to open it and say, well, if we get anything at all because we're tired or we're thinking about today or tomorrow, whatever the case may be, we have to take effort into saying, show me Christ. Let me see more of my Lord. So that is what our hope is. And so as we go through Matthew, yeah, we're going to come across some some good stories, some miracles that we'll, we'll see them today. We're going to come across the teaching. We're going to come across some good uh, theology. But all of it should be saying, look at Jesus. Okay, It all should be pointing us to see and savor our Lord more. And uh, Jesus begins in chapter 4, after being driven into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tempted by Satan, we see Jesus isn't just a prophet, a good man, but he is a better Adam. Adam failed the temptation of Satan in the garden. Jesus defeats the temptation of Satan in the wilderness. Adam took a bite. Jesus fasted for 40 days and still said, I win. And so Jesus is the better Adam in Matthew 4. Then he goes on and leaves the wilderness and begins preaching the gospel, saying this very thing. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Why? Because the king is at hand. And then he goes on and selects his disciples at the end of four. And uh, and then chapter five through six and seven, we get the Sermon on the Mount, which is the first great recorded teaching of Jesus in Matthew. And then we find ourselves, Jesus is coming off the mountain, the mountain that we spent two three chapters on and hearing his teaching. So then we get to chapter eight. Chapter 8. So here's the game plan for today. We're going to do a quick walkthrough, verses 1 through 4. And then there are three uh, sort of main points with, and they, they kind of, they, well, they don't kind of, they really intertwine with one another. And those three main points that we're going to discuss is number one, which is the title of the sermon, the effect of Christ. The effect of Christ. Number two, the condition of the leper. And number three, the power of Christ. The effect of Christ, the condition of the leper, and the power of Christ. So, quick walk through. We get into verse 1, and we see that Jesus is coming down the mountain. So open up your Bible, look at verse 1, and follow along with me. We're going to do this fast. So he comes down off the mountain. This was a transition from chapter 7 that we just read earlier on into 8. Right? He goes from words to wonders, because all of 8 and even into 9... It's less teaching and more miraculous works or miracles. But what we have to understand, we'll come back to and see, and we discussed uh, uh, last spring, is that when Jesus was finished teaching at the end of Matthew 7, uh, they were, as it says, astonished. Because not only was he teaching, but he was teaching as one who had authority. Big important word, authority. He had right and rule over what he was saying. He was he was preaching as if he wrote it, which he did, right? It was his word. And so he comes down off the mountain. People are noticing he's a different type of teacher. Great crowds, it says, followed him. And, and 
the way Matthew does things, he does things a little different. And so the the leper, Jesus cleansing the leper, seems to come before the Sermon on the Mount. But the way Matthew wants to do it isn't necessarily chronological. But he's sort of got he's got a game plan in mind. But even so. Jesus had begun teaching and preaching before he cleansed the leper, and we'll see later he'd been doing miracles in Galilee. And so the word had been spreading about this Jesus of Nazareth. People were getting, or he was getting people's attention in what he was doing. And now, so you notice it says great crowds followed him or were following him. Follow, following is a huge theme. In Matthew, but also in uh, Mark and Luke as well. It is a word that happens and takes place many times. Following Jesus or followed him. Um, But what we'll notice as we go through Matthew is that some, and I, I, I struggled with how to say this. Some followed for the right reasons and some followed for the wrong reasons. Okay? And we'll touch on that a little bit more later. But... We've got great crowds following him as he's uh, come off the mountain. Uh, And then verse 2 starts, and behold. Now, Matthew probably used that phrase, and behold, because what he was about to say was not an ordinary type of event that happened in this region amongst the people who who knew God's law. When it came to leprosy, and he's like, "Hey, guess guess what? What happened? He came off the mountain, and a leper came up to him. This was a big deal, because if you go back and re- read Leviticus 13 and 14, there are strict rules, laws, and guidelines for anyone who might even be experiencing the first signs of leprosy. And as I read earlier." Those who were truly diagnosed with leprosy by the priest, mind you, had to walk around a certain manner and declare themselves unclean, unclean, because leprosy was a very contagious disease. Not only did they have to walk around saying unclean, unclean, but they could not live in amongst the people. And even after they maybe uh, they had been healed, not by anything they did. There was no cure for leprosy, but some did come uh, sort of come out of it in a way where their wounds were closed up and they kind of ashed over and they were declared clean. But even after being declared clean, they couldn't live in their own tents for like seven days because they were also afraid of things, material things, carrying the disease of leprosy. And so there are all these sorts of rules and regulations for how Israel were to handle uh, lepers and those who are experiencing this disease. And so he's like, guys, a leper just walked up to Jesus. This is a big deal. Um, Matthew Henry makes a note in his commentary. Uh, If anybody wants to read a good commentary on any passage of Scripture, Matthew Henry is a faithful go-to commentator. Uh, Matthew Henry makes this note of Israel's view, ultimately God's view, towards leprosy, but how, how Israel saw God's interaction with Israel through leprosy, considering what had happened in the Law and the Prophets. Here's what he said. Leprosy was looked upon among the Jews as a particular mark of God's displeasure. That's why we see Miriam, Gehazi, and uh, Uzziah smitten with leprosy for some one particular sin. And so, leprosy not only in the eyes of Israel was a disease, but it was a judgment from God. Okay? So what was happening was not normal. And then we go on and we see uh, the way the leper approaches Jesus says, and he came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord. The leper came to him in a posture, an act of worship. This man's disposition, his attitude, was a, was a sign of a true follower. You know, there, 
Again, we've got this great crowd that's following him, and there might be some in them that are true and some aren't, some genuine, some false. Well, he comes in the true act of worship. He comes actually as a servant, kneeling before him. So in the KJV, it says he came and worshiped him. In the ESV and some others, it says he came and knelt before him. Same same idea. It was a posture and an act of of worship. And not only did he come to serve him and kneel before him and make a request, he came acknowledging his divine power. He came acknowledging the powerful will of God. He says, "If you will." Well, he begins it, he says, "Lord, if you will, you can make me clean." Now, if the story wasn't wild enough for a first century Jew. It gets even wilder here in verse 3. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. This would have shocked anyone in the first century who was hearing this story. Because the, the whole point of the rules and guidelines given from God to Israel regarding lepers was to not touch them. And this leper came up to Jesus, the son of God, the son of David, the son of Abraham, and said, if you will, you uh, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand. And against all wisdom that we would assume as human beings, stretched out his hand and touched the leper. But when he touched him, he said these four words, I will, that's it, that's one statement, I will. Not like I will do something, but I will it. Be clean. Now consider the implications of those four words. Consider the magnitude of those four words. The authority, the power expressed in small little words. And we'll talk more about this in a moment, but I want to put this in your mind for you to consider. Especially parents, you understand, even kids, you know that when you get a wound on your hand, you, what do you do? You've got to go, you got to clean it, you got to get the dirt out of it, you go find the neosporin, the stuff that don't burn, right, kids? And then you got to get a Band-Aid, and you, you, you work on it, you put it on, and you hope... Within a couple days, it's going to start to feel better. It's going to start to heal. You might have to repeat the process in a couple days, right? And then, uh, Lord willing, if it all heals up, you might even have a little bit of scar. All that work that we have to take and to still have a scar. Jesus touched him and spoke, I will be clean. And immediately, immediately, he says, and immediately his leprosy was cleansed. How quick was the will and power of God. Immediately his leprosy was gone. And we'll revisit that a little bit later too. Now finally verse 4. Uh, as we get to the, the last verse in this section. This is a tricky one. Um, at least for me it always has been. Verse 4 he says, And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. Now, we have two statements, sort of two commands that Jesus gives the, the leper, well, no longer a leper. And uh, those two statements are conjoined by the conjunction, but. So he starts off, he's like, don't, don't tell anybody, right? That's what he says. See that you say nothing to anyone. Um, and then he, he then says, but go show yourself to the priest. Now, there are many times in Jesus' life and in his ministry where we see him attempting to conceal basically his identity as Christ, as the Messiah. Um, you know what? In, in Peter's great confession, we'll get to it when we get to chapter 16. And Jesus, uh, Jesus says, you are, um, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And what does Jesus tell him and the disciples after that? Don't tell anybody. That's quite an odd thing. 
He says, he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Jesus, then let's think about it in uh, some other cases. Jesus heals two blind men, and he says to them, see that no one knows about it. Okay? But you've also got Jesus healing uh, the man with unclean spirits, whom we know as Legion. You know, they're uh, the, uh, the one with many... With many unclean spirits, he ultimately puts in the pigs and they jump off the cliff. Well, he tells him to go home and tell everybody. So what's going on here? Um, in this case, why why would Jesus tell him not to speak of such a divine act? It's a good question. Matthew doesn't really answer the question for us. Now, Mark and Luke give us a little bit more. Mark and Luke say that after, after this happens, he goes and spills the beans. He goes and starts telling everybody. And then it doesn't, Mark and Luke, don't, they don't leave it there. They actually express that there was consequences to that. And so after this man being healed goes and tells everyone, and it says he went and he just went and started telling everybody. It's such a great thing. It says it hindered Jesus from going to the towns because everyone was wanting to come near him to be healed. And so he had to remain in desolate places. So there are many times we look at passages like this and we think where Jesus tells them not to say anything. And we, we kind of get that phrase in the back of our hand. Well, the time has not come for, you know, you know, Jesus tells his uh, mother, woman, this is not my time. You know, there are many times that we see that. Okay, Jesus, or when he uh, when he escapes from what is it, uh, Nazareth, by the crowds uh, who want to. No, it wasn't Nazareth. I don't know who that where that was, but they wanted to make him king. And he's like, eh, it's not it's not time yet. This isn't this isn't how we're going to do it. Um, but here in this case, I think Jesus had a reason. He told this guy not to tell. Uh, and ultimately, we're just going to call it like it is. The leper disobeyed Jesus. Like, he he just was healed by Jesus, and then he disobeyed Jesus. And there were actually consequences. It affect, if, it, if you can affect the ministry of Jesus, you know, he did. But ultimately, it says that even he couldn't go into towns, people came out to him. So, But he still disobeyed Jesus. A lot of people use this section, this verse as saying, see, he couldn't help himself and he needed, he went and evangelized. So you need to go and evangelize. And that might be true. But I think the point here is you need to obey Jesus. <laughs> and if he tells you to do something, you should probably do it. And don't, don't try to look too far into it. Um, but I also, I have a, I have a theory as well here. Uh, <coughs> I like the way the KJV translates it because I think it helps understand why Jesus might pair these two commands together. Look, uh, look at the verse 4 again. You, you can see it in all the translations, but I'm going to read the KJV translation to you if you don't have it. And he said, Jesus said unto him, See thou tell no man, but go thy way. Show yourself to the priest, show thyself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. There's a very good possibility also that Christ was just wanting to honor and obey the law. Because if you understand the Levitical rules and guidelines in chapter 13 and chapter 14 of Leviticus, that when someone was to be declared clean by the priest, they had to go to the priest and perform certain rituals and give certain offerings and sacrifices. It had to be done in front of the priest. And the priest had to go through these exact uh, rules to declare the, the person unclean. And so Jesus says, hey, go do it. Honor the law. Go and take your lamb and your birds and your in your off what there's quite a go read Leviticus 13 and 14 this week and you'll understand the magnitude of what was taking place here. Jesus says, you don't have time to go tell anybody. Go to the high priest, obey the law and be declared clean. J Jesus came to fulfill the law, not to abolish it, right? 
So if the law at this time, which was active in this ceremonial law, if Jesus was to obey the law, he was telling this guy, hey, go obey the law. Don't go. Don't go. What was it? Um, don't get sidetracked. Be obedient. So it's sort of uh, a theory of mine there. So that gets us to the end of that section. Now, the three things. Number one, the effect of Christ. And what do I mean when I say the effect of Christ? What I mean is the impact of Christ. The influence. We'll use that word, I'm an influencer. Um, And we're really not influencing anybody. We're just seeking followers, which is really kind of ironic that Jesus was the influencer and he attracted all the followers. Uh, The effect of Christ, when I say the effect of Christ, I mean he had an impact and influence with his presence on people, on towns, even whole nations. And perhaps not just his uh, presence, but also a verbal communication of his existence had impacts and effects on people. So what is it about Christ that makes him this way, an influencer, an effector? Well, it's very simple. He's God. It's not that difficult. You think about think about the scriptures, and what came to my mind was Rahab and Jericho in Joshua. Remember how when Rahab had met with the spies who were checking in out checking out Jericho. She says to, the, uh, says to them, and I'm, I'm sort of paraphrasing here, uh, we were affected by you guys. Like we heard of what was going on in Egypt. We heard what Yahweh did to the Red Sea. We heard about the Amorite kings that you guys put into the ground. And we melted. It affected us. And all we have done is heard what has happened. It's, uh, I think it's Joshua 2, maybe 3. I think it's chapter 2. It says, And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, Rahab, to the spies. And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, Yahweh your God, he is God in the heavens above and the earth beneath. The same for Jesus, the Son of God. You see, and for Rahab, God's presence or hearing of his existence influenced her in a way that led her to belief, to trust, and to even seek his mercy, because that's what she did. Same thing's happening in Matthew verses or Matthew chapter eight, or the first seven chapters of Matthew. You think back to chapter four of Matthew, and we see it beginning. So fame spread, his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and para, uh, paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee to uh, and the Decapolis, from Jerusalem and Judea and far beyond the Jordan. And what was the influencing factor there? Well, it was mainly people seeking healing. And then we begin chapter 8. Jesus is coming off this mountain with great crowds following him. And what seems to be the big influence there? His word, his preaching, his teaching. As we saw at the end of 7. See, this is the first effect of Christ. The first effect of Christ is that he attracts a crowd. He generates, he creates followers. Perhaps they'd heard or seen directly or indirectly the words or the wonders of Jesus. His preaching was beyond this world. And he was performing miracles like the prophets of old. Who was this man? He generated a crowd. He attracted followers. Isn't he just a carpenter from Nazareth? But see, Jesus never sought the crowds. It's really interesting. Sometimes he embraced them. 
And sometimes he ran them off. Depends on what the situation was. See, sometimes numbers, an increase in a crowd, isn't a sign of worship. Sometimes large congregations aren't a sign of revival. Sometimes it's just a simply an increase of people. That's it. It's just people who have seen or heard and have been attracted. Some for right reasons, some for wrong reasons. People have been influenced in wrong reasons, not by worship, but by their best interest in self-preservation. There was another group in Joshua, the book of Joshua, the inhabitants of Gibeon. It's not a real familiar story, but like Rahab, they heard of this Yahweh, of the dried up Red Sea, of um, the taking of the kings of the Amorites. They heard that this Yahweh was not something to be messed with. And so you know what they did? They were influenced. They were affected, but they were affected in a way different from Rahab. They reacted in a way that was not worship as Rahab did or this leper, but they deceived the Israelites for the sake of self-preservation. They drew nearer to God through Israel for self-gain. You see? We can come close to God, to his church, either in worship or self-gain. And so I put this truth and this question before you. All of us this morning are here because of the influence, the effect of Jesus Christ. Every single one of us. I mean, there's no reason to be here otherwise. In one sense, we're all a part of a great crowd that follow Jesus. But the question is, is do you follow to worship or do you follow for your self-preservation? For your self-gain? Do you follow in deception, putting yourself in the crowds in hopes that you might also benefit from what wonders are happening? Not truly submitting yourself to the king, the Lord of creation. Or, and I pray that you follow in faith, knowing as Peter would claim after many of the disciples in John 6, one of, the, one of the greatest chapters in the New Testament, John 6, after Jesus' hard teaching and his disciples left him. Not the twelve, but part of the large crowd. They left because they didn't like the hard teaching. And Jesus asked Peter and the twelve, will you go also? And, they, and Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And they follow and worship. I pray that you are a true follower, a true worshiper of Jesus Christ. So the second effect of Jesus isn't just that he attracts but he also creates worshipers. He creates them. This is evident in the leper of our text, right? How do we know this? Well, it says it says that he came to worship him in the KJV or in the ESV to kneel down before him in the posture of worship. That word used all throughout the New Testament to signify worship. And I think it's a sort of a side note. That we as a people, the church, we have to discipline ourselves in the types of words we use and how we use them. We live in a culture where worship equals singing. Well, that's not worship. It can be. It can be. Singing isn't simply an act. Or singing is simply an action that can be worship or worshipful. So worship is a posture. And I don't mean physically. I mean internally. Worship is a posture that is humble and looking up to him who who deserves to be worshipped. Therefore, anything that you do by faith to the glory of God can be worshipped. 
You mowing that stinking lawn. Do it to the glory of God by faith and worship. You changing that baby's diaper. Do it to the glory of God by faith and worship. You're dealing with that grumpy old neighbor. Do it to the glory of God by faith and worship. That's the type of people we ought to be. Humbled, knelt down before God in our hearts to worship him, just like this leper. So, but you know, you think, well, hey, he came because he needed something. Yeah, but guess what? You think God is a God who does not care for those whom love him and worship him? We are his children. He is our father. And when we come to God, the God of the universe, in humble hearts, ready to worship the supreme ruler of all things, him who is capable of manipulating the atoms in our bodies, who make the sun come up and down, him who is able to kill our sinful flesh and raise us unto new life, you better believe he's going to bless us. It just might not be in the way that the world would think that we should be blessed. This leads us to the third thing. The third effect of Christ. So he attracts a crowd. He generates followers. He creates worshipers. Thirdly, he transforms. He transforms. Second Corinthians 3, I'll just read it for you. Reads like this, because I want to I want to put this before you before we look at this third effect, uh, because I want you to see the glory of Christ and be transformed, and that's the formula here, that's the effect Christ has, showing Himself and transforming those who see Him, and Paul writes to the Corinthians. In chapter 3, second second letter. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. When you see Jesus, and I don't mean physically, but when you see him through the eyes of faith, For who he really is, when you are beholding his glory, you cannot not be transformed. When you behold the glory of Jesus Christ, you will not be the same now and forever. When you see him with the eyes of faith, And with the knowledge that he is God in the flesh, the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world, you are a new creature, a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. This is the effect of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ upon the sick, leprous, sinful hearts of man. We have to understand that there is, and we might see this a little bit more, there is... A connection between the leprous Israelite and the sinful, sick, dead heart. One thing that as I was reading Leviticus 13 and 14, whenever a leper was declared clean, they had to make atonement for the leper. Now think about that. What what are you atoning for? His disease? Absolutely not. What do you atone for? Sin. Sin. And so there's this obvious connection between the work the priest did amongst the lepers and the atonement and the offerings and the sacrifices and the work of Christ in cleansing our sick, leprous hearts. Right? We have to see that. Which gets us to... Um, the next main heading, and we'll go quick through this. 
And that's the condition of the leper. You see, those who have been truly affected, influenced by the presence of Christ, they've been made to be worshipers. They've been transformed by the power of God. And you you see this in two different ways with this leper. One's obvious, one's not. If you don't think, if you think I'm going for a little stretch here, then we'll, we'll talk about it afterwards. The condition of the leper, I th- it seems as if he's been transformed twice. Like I said, one's obvious because I mean he's a leper, and then we end the we end the text, and he's not. He's healed. When Jesus touched him. Jesus spoke the words, I will be clean, and the transformation took place. That's the real easy, obvious one. But here we have a man. Think about the leper before this day. We have a man with an incurable condition, no remedy, no medicine. He spent however long he's been sick. He's lived his life outside the camp, having to declare himself unclean, unclean whenever he sees somebody. He's living a hopeless life. Separated from the congregation. But yet, he came to Jesus. When we read this text, we don't see a man that is hopeless. Right? We don't see a man who lacks faith. Right? If he was hopeless and had no faith... He would have stayed home and stayed home in his miserable condition. We see a man who trusts in Jesus. So what's that tell you? It tells you that prior to standing before Jesus in this passage, he heard or had seen directly or indirectly the power, influence, and the effect that Jesus has. And when he saw it, He was transformed. He believed it. He trusted Christ. He didn't know. He didn't. There was no. There was no theological confession of faith on the on justification and adoption and sanctification. He just knew that he must trust Jesus. Not only trust him, but worship him. Fall down before him. Like Rahab, at some point, he realized that Yahweh was in his presence, that God was there. That's what he knew. The effect of Jesus transformed this man before uh, Jesus ever physically touched him. This man was first transformed internally before he was externally. Which leads us to the final point. So there's the effect of Christ, the condition of the leper, and now the power of Christ. It is obvious that it is the power of Christ that affects and transforms. It attracts and creates the power of Christ. Three things we see in this text. His, his touch, his word, and his will. The power of Christ is shown as his touch, his word, and his will. And I believe that order is also the order of significance concerning the power of Christ. His touch, his word, his will. I'll I'll show you what I mean. Here Jesus, what's he do? He stretches out his hand and he touches the leper. But we see, and and we see in other instances where Jesus is healing someone and he touches them. He touches their eyes. Or uh, Mark records the woman with the discharge who actually touches Jesus. And what does he say? He turns and he says, I I perceive that power has come out of me. So there's this physical power, or there's this uh, spiritual power that comes from the physical touch of Jesus. Yet there are many times that Jesus heals without touching There are many times that Jesus heals without being in the same area as the person he's healing. And so, yes, there was power in his touch as he heals the leper. But we also see the power of Jesus' words because he spoke as he touched. I will be clean. His words seem to confirm his touch. But also his words seem to command the result. Be clean. And again, what a divine statement and act 
of two little words to transform the atoms and molecules of a man from diseased, sick, to healed and clean. The same power that creates was the power that came from his touch and his words to clean, cleanse this man of leprosy. Again, considering all the work we put into our healing of wounds, Jesus just said it. And it happened. But let's not stop there regarding the power of the word of Christ, right? We can't do that. It could be that it was the power of the word of Christ that brought faith to this leper. Um, and why would we make this assumption? Well, we know that the leper acted in faith. He ha- I mean, that, that's very obvious. And we also know the origin of faith. Faith comes from hearing the word of Christ. The power of the word of Christ brings faith into faithless hearts. This is perhaps the greatest goal that we want to see as we go through Matthew, is that we examine the word of Christ, the words about Christ, and then pray that we be built up in our faith. Right? That's what we want when we read through Matthew. For some of you, it might be that you actually believe for the first time. You might hear the words of Christ and believe for the first time. You might hear the words of the gospel and trust in him, who he is, what he's done. And then doing that, he will cleanse your leprous heart and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Just like he cleansed the leper of his spots. But guess what happened when the leper was cleansed? He got to go back into the great congregation. And when you tr- put your trust in Christ and follow him, you come into the great congregation. If you've been following in Psalm 1, the wicked are not allowed in the great congregation. They are kept outside. And for others, as we go through Matthew, for Christians who have come to know him before, we come to him again and again. Marveling at the words and the works, the wonders of Christ stirred up in our faith. So this leads us to our final point, the power of the will of God. So the power of Christ in his touch, his word, but also in his will. This is where the power comes from. His will. The touch And the word of Christ are vehicles to express the power of the will of God in Jesus Christ. The leper acknowledges it, correct? I can be clean if you will. Here he is acknowledging the leper that it is only by the will of God that he can be cleansed of such a disease. No other hope does he have other than... That God will him cleansed. And yes, Jesus responds with a touch and a word. But more importantly, he exercises the most powerful thing in heaven and earth. And that is his will. How powerful is the will of God? It's more powerful, more powerful than a million locomotives. Nothing can stop this train. The will of God. Isaiah 46. Let's look at Isaiah 46 as we close and consider the power of the will of God. Isaiah 46, verse 8. Remember this and stand firm. Isaiah 46, verse 8. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressor. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel 
will stand, shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purposes, calling a, bra- a bird of prey from the east and the man of my counsel from a far country. Here it is. I have spoken. I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. The sovereign power created all things, controls all things, and sustains all things. The power of the will of Christ parted the waters and crushed the Egyptians. It brought down the walls of Jericho, and it stopped the Jordan River from flowing. The power of the will put Jesus upon the cross. And the power of the will of God brought Jesus out of the tomb. This is the most powerful force in existence. And the power of the will of God, as we looked at this morning, will also raise you from the dead. His will will be done. It is this power that we can take to heart. Because look at the end of this section in Isaiah 46. Because here's the thing. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, right? Prone to leave the God I love. Take heart in what he says in verse 12. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart. You who are far from righteousness, I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put my salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. That's his promise of Christ to us. That's the promise of the redemptive plan of God to us stubborn, sinful people. The good news of Jesus Christ is exercised because of the will of God in verses 12 and 13. And I'll read it in New Testament terms. The power and the will of God coming to us is through the grace of God. That's New Testament terms. Paul says it this way. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That is an unstoppable force. The grace of God exercised out of the power of the will of God to save a people for his own possession. That he might be glorified for all eternity and that there will be a great congregation that no man can number of tribe, tongue, and nation Praising and singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lamb God Almighty. The power of the will of God to accomplish it, and He will. No matter how bad the world is, no matter how wicked the things are all around us, the power of the will of God will not stop, and He will accomplish all that He has purposed to do. And praise be to God that He has loved us and gave us His Son. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's pray. Father, we ask that the effect of Christ would be here greatly today. That you would draw and create followers. That you would uh, transform and build worshipers. Turn sinners into saints through faith in Christ. Might we know Christ more and see the power of the will of Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.